You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. copy of God's Word, and I'm going to try to restrict uh, most of my um, scripture passage to the 27th and the 26th chapters of Exodus. Um, Maybe you've never heard of John Gillespie McGee Jr., probably not. He was born in Shanghai. His dad was an American. His mother was British. They were missionaries. They were missionaries to China. And uh, he was born there, but he went back to England for his education. When he was ready for his college education, he went back. 1938, he graduated, and he graduated with awards. He was quite a poet. He was writing poetry even at the time um, and probably would have done something with that. You know, though you don't know his name, you know one line out of his out of one of his poems, just one line. I don't think he wrote but two or three because he died so tragically early. Uh, When he graduated in England from university, he was going to go on and further his education at the university at Yale here in the States. Got here, 1939. What's going on in 1939? England enters into war against Hitler. Hitler has invaded Poland and uh, England and France had a pact with Poland, and so now England and France were in war against Germany. So he decides not to enroll at Yale, but he goes across the border to Canada, and he becomes part of the Royal Canadian Air Force. He's trained, uh, gets the train, they ship him straight off to England, and for about 10 weeks, he flies these missions over the channel and into France, um, guarding these larger bombers as they were making their way into Europe. After about 10 weeks, tragedy struck when he flew into another British plane. There was a crash, a collision, an explosion. Tragically, he died. Uh, Parents still in China did not know uh, that that their son had been killed even by the time he was uh, buried But a chaplain picked up his poem and read his poem at his service. I want you to listen to just this last stanza. Up, up the long, delirious, burning blue. He's talking about flying. I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace, where never lark nor ever eagle flew, and while with silent lifting mine I've trod, the high untrespassed sanctity of space. Now this is what you know. And put out my hand and touched the face of God. In 1986, Ronald Reagan, after the Challenger exploded and the tragedy and the loss of those astronauts, took that and spoke that to a nation that was trying to grieve its way through the loss Uh, of these uh, astronauts, our astronauts. It is something about us 
that we long to touch, we long to be close, we long to be near, we hunger. It's because we are created beings and within us there is this yearning to be close to the creator. Regardless of whether or not you're a Christian or you're lost, there is something deep within the soul of man that longs to have some kind of experience with the God who created us. That's exactly what you come to when you come to the tabernacle. Now, we've been going through the book of Exodus uh, since last September, and uh, I'm going to take two sections and kind of fold them into one and uh, deal with this whole issue of the tabernacle and the altar and uh, the laver and the uh, candelabra and all of these aspects over the next few weeks. Uh, And I hope and pray that through this, you'll follow with me. You're going to need a copy of God's Word. There is so much. As I said, there are over 50 chapters in Scripture about the tabernacle. Uh, And uh, there's so much said about it, and you wonder why is all of this. It's because God is trying to show us something about the coming Messiah and the plan of redemption in the tabernacle. It was a way for God to illustrate it for his people. His people were in the kindergarten days. They were just in the, the, the early days, the grammar days, the grammar school days of learning about God. And so he wants to give them an ill. What's the best way to teach a man? YouTube. Show me a YouTube, uh, you know, how do you fix this hot water heater? Well, let me go to the YouTube and figure it out. And I see it on the YouTube. Men are visual. I can figure it out. I can go and I can at least bluff my, I can make my wife think I know what I'm doing because I've secretly watched the YouTube on how to fix the hot water heater. So uh, that's what, and that's what God is going to do with Moses. I'm convinced that he shows Moses a copy in heaven of the tabernacle. So he's going to show him this, and it's from this that he is going to build this tabernacle and that the people of God will have the presence of God in their midst. Now, that's what God has wanted. Now, that's next week, God's desire. So I'll I'll leave that to next week, but I'll show you this. When Moses comes, a lot of you last week came to me and you said this, Man, that's one of my favorite passages. I so identify with that passage. I've always loved to read that passage. When God picks Moses up, puts him in the cleft of the rock, causes his presence to go by, covers him with his hand, and then removes it, Moses is able to see the back of God. And so many people last week come and say, that's my favorite passage. I always wondered about that. I always love to read that passage. It's because we long for the same kind of experience. If I could just get close enough to the presence of God. Let me tell you a prayer that I've pr- I have prayed this so many times I can't remember. So many times I've gone to Jesus and I said, if I could just touch the hem of your garment, if I could just get that close, because there is a longing, a desire in man to be close to God. Now, if I can use anthropomorphic language, speaking of God in a human term, when Moses said, show me your glory, if you think that was an outburst of excitement on Moses' part, let me tell you, I am convinced that God was thrilled. I am convinced that God was thrilled that Moses wanted to be in his presence. 
because God is going to give him the plans for a tabernacle where God can say, I'm going to come and be in your presence. That's the whole issue behind all of this. So he's going to give the design of the tabernacle. Now, let me just point this out in Scripture. And I've got a lot I want to point out. Folks, my problem is not having enough to preach. It's having too much to preach, and what do I throw out? So I'm going to give you a couple of things that I hope will uh, just be interesting to draw you into this. And then I'm going to deal with three aspects of the tabernacle. Um, In chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31, you have the blueprint of the tabernacle. God is giving the blueprint to Moses. I think he lets him see it personally. Uh, And he says, this is the tabernacle. This is what I want built. And uh, so in those chapters, 25 through 31, God starts, now watch this, God starts in the very center of the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. And as he does that, he he talks his way or he talks Moses from the center all the way out of the tabernacle. You get that? Uh, Hello? Okay. Now, you come to chapter 35 through 40, This is going to be the construction of the tabernacle. God is going to work it back the other way. He's going to start on the outside of the tabernacle, and he'll begin to slowly work his way back into the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. Now you say, okay, well, that's all right. So what's the big deal with that? Well, look at what God is doing. God comes from his perspective and starting in the very center of the Holy of Holies, Starting in the very center of God himself, it was God himself who left all of heaven and he came out to earth. And we beheld his glory. The glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. But then when he talks of the construction He shows how we can come through the gate of salvation. And in coming through the gate of salvation, we are able to work our way back. We're not able to work, but we are able to go with our Savior all the way back until he gets back into his heaven. So that's what's going on here. So God's going to work his way from the center out just as Jesus came from the throne of heaven itself down to earth. And now he's going to take us from this earth and our sin all the way back up into his heaven. So you get a picture, and that's exactly what it's a picture of. It's a picture of the coming Messiah, and it is a picture of God's drama of redemption. And what God is doing with the tabernacle is he's using it like an... He's using it like you're going to see, because we're going to use a a good bit of video here, it's a teaching tool. And God is going to use a teaching tool for his people, and ultimately what he's going to do and where we're going to go is that God doesn't meet with us, as Bob prayed moments ago. We don't meet with God in a tabernacle. We are now the of God. He now resides in us. Oh, what a thought. What a thought. So God takes the tabernacle, and the tabernacle becomes the classroom where he teaches his people about his Messiah and his redemption. 
Now, let me let you in on a secret. The Hebrews fail. They flunk it. So don't flunk it, okay? They flunk it. It's, as, it's amazing to me how God puts all of this out there for them to see, and it never registers what's going on. So let's begin, and we're going to begin with the first thing that you come up on, and that's the wall of separation. You've got this great wall of separation that is there, that hangs there, and that wall of separation basically says you cannot come in. There is no way you can come into uh, this tabernacle, into the place of God's presence. Now, the tabernacle itself was... um, Uh, about 150 feet long and uh, about 75 feet wide. And this outer wall, this is the wall I'm talking about here. Look, it was capped with a silver cap. It it was uh, made out of this white Egyptian linen. Now, let me tell you, uh, everything in this temple speaks of Jesus, every single thing. This is the maddening thing to try to preach it is that I can't deal with all of it. But you watch it as it goes up. See, people were out here. This is the courtyard in here. By the way, in Hebrews chapter 8, God tells Moses, he told him, he says, you had better build it exactly like I tell you. Now, let me give you a little side note. because Listen, you don't have anything but time. Cowboys aren't playing today, so I've got time to do this. Here it is. Um, Solomon comes, and when he builds the temple, he builds how many courts? Two. Herod builds his temple. How many courts does he have? Four. How many courts do you see here? One. You be careful. Build this thing like I'm telling you to build it, Moses. Solomon comes with two, temp- with two courts, one for the Hebrews, one for the Gentiles. Separation already. Then you get into Herod's temple, and you've got a courtyard for the priests, separated from the people. You've got a courtyard for the men, then a courtyard for the women, then a courtyard for old pagan Gentiles. You can see separation creeping in, can't you? Satan is the author of separation from one another. There was to be no separation. Priests from people, Reformation, loved to, I, I could just launch off on that. Separation, the priesthood, I'm not separate from you. I'm not distinct from you. I've just been called to ministry, but I am a man just like you are. Then you separate men from women. God never intended that. That was not God's intention. And then the intention of separating Jew from Gentile, God was never in favor of that. There was just one courtyard here, and all of them were to go into this courtyard. Now, not into the tabernacle itself, but into the courtyard before God, they were all to go. That white linen, the Egyptians were experts at making linen. In fact, they made the finest linen ever known to man much finer than the linen that is made in factories and on machines today. They would take that flax, they would twist it, and they would make linen out of it, linen cloth out of it, and they taught the Hebrews how to do it because they turned all the work of the Egyptians over to the Hebrews. 
They didn't just make bricks. They didn't just build pyramids. They also would weave together very fine fabric like this Egyptian linen, kind of like Egyptian cotton today, but even finer and more expensive. It was white so that those who stood on the outside of this fence would look at this wall and realize it was a wall of separation because of my sin. It's this stark, bright white that is pure. It spoke of the purity of Christ. It spoke of the purity and the righteousness of Christ. It spoke of the holiness of God. It spoke of the separation because we are we are stained on the inside, whereas on the outside, I look on the white here that speaks of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a wall of separation because my sin separates me from a holy, perfect, righteous, clean, pure God. You could not get more separated than that. So there is the picture of the linen that is there, but it stands on these posts that are made out of shatim wood, or it's also called acacia, but don't confuse it with the acacia wood here in America. It's a different tree. That wood was so hard. If you go to Israel with me, I'll show it to you. It, grows, it just grows all over the desert, out in the wilderness, these shatim trees, these acacia trees. They're not very big, but the wood is so hard uh, that if you burned a, a piece of the wood, you could burn it all night. It's so dense. Uh, it, it's so tight. The grain is so tight uh, that it burns forever. It may be the longest burning wood uh, that is out there. And in that, do you know what it says? It says that it is basically impervious to disease or to the attacks of insects. And you say, well, okay, well, what does all that mean? Incorruptible. Who is our Jesus but the incorruptible Christ? It is a picture of incorrupt. You cannot corrupt him. He, isn't, he is not a sinner. He has no sin. He is incorruptible. And he stands stalwart holding up his righteousness, the incorruptible Christ. So before you ever get into it, you are somewhat intimidated by it, realizing that I am corrupted and I am very, very impure, very dirty, very unclean. And you know how these things stand? If you look down here on the bottom, what you see are sockets. That's exactly what Scripture calls them, sockets. And these sockets are made out of bronze, out of brass. All of these, you'll see them in a moment. They'll put a cap, a silver cap on. See, there you come now with the bronze sockets. These bronze sockets, and do you know what I've done? I've gotten you into the text without giving you the text. This is chapter 27, verse 9. Um, I'm, listen, folks, I've got so much I could preach to you. I could hold you for hours here. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side. There shall be hangings of the court. Fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for one side. Its pillars shall be 20. There are 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. So up at the top, there is this silver cap. And then there are these silver bands all the way down and a bronze stand. Now, let me show you two things here out of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 19. It's interesting how much of this you'll be able to look over into Revelation and find some kind of relation. A relation in Revelation. 
There you go. We got a relation in the revelation. Here it is in chapter 19. That white linen there, listen to this. He is clothed with a robe dipped in his blood. This is the second coming of Jesus. This is not the... uh, this is not the rapture. This is the second coming. He is coming back to earth now to rule. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in what? Fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who is that army? Us, you, me, the rest of all of Christendom through all the ages, we come back and we come back clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Why? Because look back to verse 13, his robe has been dipped in blood. His blood cleanses us, cleans us up. We become pure in Jesus Christ. And not only do we become pure in Jesus Christ, we become his righteousness. Now, That wall stands there anchored in, look on over at Revelation chapter 1, it stands anchored in bronze. Listen to what we read in Revelation chapter 1 as John sees the resurrected Christ beginning in verse 14. He says, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. He said, I looked down at the feet of Christ and it looked as if they were made out of bronze that just came out of the furnace and they glowed red. Bronze, brass in scripture is always a picture of judgment. Always a picture of judgment. So that when you see this post holding up this white cloth fine linen of righteousness and that post standing there representing the incorruptible Christ. He stands on feet of brass, which says you cannot enter here unless under the penalty of judgment. So I stand outside the wall of separation and I look at the wall of separation and I see one who says, I am pure, I am clean, I am holy, I am God, and there is judgment if you approach me. By the way, in Herod's temple, uh, if a Gentile went into one of the other courts, it was, uh, there, there was a, a sign that was put up in the court of the Gentiles that said, you will, you will forfeit your life. They would come out and immediately kill you if you walked into one of the other, te- in, in one of the other courts there in, in the temple of Herod's day, Jesus' day. This is what this is saying. You, you come in here without going through the gate of salvation, and it's death. It's death. Now, do you see that? Y'all okay? There's the wall of separation. That's the first thing you see when you come to that gate. Uh, come to that tabernacle, is you see that there's a wall that separates me from what's on the inside. What's on the inside is the presence of God. What's in my heart is I want to get to the presence of God. Now look at the second thing, and I want you to see the gate now, the gate, the wall of salvation. I want you to look now at the gate of salvation. There's a gate that is here. It is a gate of salvation And it's still there, chapter 27, verse 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver, therefore pillars and therefore sockets. 
Well, let me just stop with that because that introduces what I want to talk to you about, and that is the gate that is there. You see it right here. This wall is about 75 feet. That gate is somewhere around 35 feet wide, and it stands on four pillars that are here. And uh, it has clasps of silver, and it is on these pillars that are here uh, that are also set down in silver or bronze. I can't remember which of these four specifically, but there's the gate. It's the gate of salvation right here. It's interesting because there are three passages into this tabernacle. This is the only one. It's always on the east. It always faces east. Uh, and this gate is the only gate by which you can enter in. You see the tabernacle here? There is a door in there. And once you get inside the tabernacle, there is another veil and you go past uh, that veil into the Holy of Holies. So there are three basic uh, gates that you pass through or doors that you pass through. You see that. You're going to see all of these numbers. Do these numbers mean you see three types of metal, gold, silver, bronze, three types of skin, goat's hair, ram's uh, hide, and uh, that of either porpoise or badger. And we'll talk about that sometime later. Which is it? Well, we really don't know. But You've got three types of skin. You've got, um, you've got three doors, three types of skin. You've got three types of metal. You see all of these numbers. Numerology is important. It speaks three of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so that when I come to this gate right here, I begin to understand that the Trinity God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all have a part of my salvation. I come to this gate of salvation that is here, and I enter in. It is the only way I can enter in. The only means possible to get into that place was by this gate. And the curtains there now are of specific color. There is blue. That blue speaks of the heavens above. It speaks of... Jesus as the divine son who comes out of heaven. Then there is the color purple, which we always understand to be royal. It's royalty. It's not that he's just king. It is that Jesus is the divine sovereign. Back in Revelation chapter 19 that we looked at moments ago, it says basically when he comes back, he is coming to reign as sovereign God of all the universe. So the color purple speaks of the sovereignty of Jesus. It, uh, it speaks of him being the son who came down from the heaven. And then the scarlet speaks of the divine sacrifice of Jesus. He was the one who came to sacrifice. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased of God. Your blood for men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. It is a picture that the blood of Jesus Christ is not only going to remove the sin of man, but it is going to unite mankind, no separation whatsoever. It will unite all of us together under Jesus Christ, and we are to be a kingdom of priests for all of eternity. That gate represents what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 9, where he said, I am the door 
And if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. There is one way to God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ the Son. He is our door, our gate of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way in there to the Father but by me. Now let me show you the third thing. And the third thing is this. It's kind of interesting. It's the foundation of salvation. I'm going to show you this, this courtyard here is interesting, but I want you to look at these pillars. You see those right there? Down at the very bottom, you see silver. All around this tabernacle was a silver foundation built with blocks of silver that interlocked. If you go home, pull out a drawer, if you've got a good piece of furniture, and you look at how it's dovetailed, these sockets would dovetail into one another so that there was no shifting of the foundation there. There was no movement of the foundation. These, uh, these silver sockets, two per um, piece of wood. The pieces of wood, by the way, and I won't get off into this too far, they were somewhere around about 27, 28, 30 inches wide, one plank and 18 inches thick. Four fingers is what they called it. Four fingers thick, about 18 inches thick, about three feet wide, 30 inches wide, a little less than three feet wide. And that would sit down. There would be two silver sockets that that one piece of wood would sit on. And by the way, they would take that piece of wood, which was about 15 feet tall, and they would overlay it with gold. Now, can you imagine what a piece of wood like that would, would weigh? Huge weight. And it sits down into that silver socket. Two of them are there that meet together, join together. And around that entire tabernacle, the foundation of the entire thing is a foundation of solid silver that that weighed somewhere around five and a half tons. Blocks of silver, 13 and a half inches long, about nine inches wide, and about a foot and a half thick. Around that entire thing is somewhere over close to 11 thousand pounds of silver. Well, wow. That's amazing to me. That's a lot of silver. Um, uh, at the price of silver today, that's somewhere in excess of $3 million. Now, can you imagine building a room onto your house that's forty-five? Uh, feet long and 15 feet wide, and the guy comes to you and says, well, just the foundation's going to be over $3 million. That's a small building. This is not like the Parthenon. It's not like the Temple of Diana in Ephesus. It is not like the Crystal Cathedral. <laughs> it's, it's not like any of those things. Uh, it is very small. It, in fact, it is, it is stark at how small it is, and yet that whole little small building right there sits on somewhere around 11,000 pounds of silver. Now, the interesting thing is this. Where does the silver come from? Uh, it's very specific. 
In fact, take your Bibles and look over with me, if you would, to the 30th chapter of Exodus. And let me just read to you a little portion of Scripture. In Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 13, you read this. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less. Now that's a great statement right there that basically says everybody who comes to God comes on equal terms. Nobody gets special privilege. Mac Brunson gets no more special privilege with God than you do. None. Zip. Nada. He says, everybody brings this. The poor, the rich, they shall bring it. When you give a contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So now what he's saying is this, and let me just give you a little bit of background. I'll do it quickly. Every time, you know, you got a new couple and they have a, a brand new baby, their first baby, the first baby born in the home, uh, dad has to go down to the temple or to the tabernacle, and he has to take five shekels of silver. Five shekels of silver to purchase that child. Why? Why the first child? It was not just the child, but it was if you're a cow, you've got a cow, and for the first time, it calves, and it has a calf, you have to take uh, shekels of silver for the calf. Why? Because God was reminding them He was always reminding them back in Egypt, the lamb's blood redeemed you. When I took the life of every firstborn animal and person in Egypt and your children lived, so you honor me with your first child by bringing me five shekels of silver. You know what that was to do? It was to redeem them out of the priesthood because now they had the Levites. The Levites were the priests. So every time that a child, say if I was from the, from the tribe of Issachar and uh, my dad had me and I'm the firstborn child in the family, he would take five shekels of silver down to the temple to give to the Lord. It was an atonement, a redemption to purchase me from going into the ministry. That's what it was. The Levites didn't have to do this. It was the people that had to do this because they were purchasing the firstborn because God says, I'll take Levi's children as the firstborn. I'm just saying and showing you all of this silver was atonement money. All of this silver would go to the temple for atonement money, and God says, take that atonement money and melt it down and build blocks of foundation because your life now is built on the foundation of atonement. My life, your life, listen, let me, let me just talk to you. Let me preach for just a minute. Let me just tell you something. As a Christian, you need to understand the foundation of your life is not the degree that you got at the university of somewhere. The foundation of your life is not what you inherited from your mom and your dad and you got this out of their state and they left these kind of things. That's not the foundation of your life. The foundation of your life, folks, is the blood of Jesus Christ. And it should be the foundation of everything we do. 
Should be the foundation of my home, which ought to make my home a whole lot different. Should be the foundation of my relationship with my wife, which should make my marriage a whole lot different. You stop and you start thinking, the foundation of my marriage is the blood of Jesus Christ? Yes. The foundation of my, my dad was in business for himself. You know what my dad did? We had a prayer meet. We had a church prayer meeting in daddy's store before he ever opened the door. You know why? Because he said this is built on the foundation of Christ. He said, whether I make money or lose money, whether I make it in business or, or go out of business, it doesn't make any difference. He says, everything I've got is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Relationship with my children, relationship with my grandchildren, relationship with you, pastor to you, my relationship with you, built on what? The blood of Jesus Christ. And let me just, let me just take this and wrap it all up because I could go for a while more. This is fascinating to me. That the whole of that tabernacle said, everything that happens here is based on the, on the foundation of redemption. Atonement. Atonement. Atonement has been made. So Paul comes in 1 Corinthians you know what, I've gotten out of notes. I don't know where I am in my notes, so let me just, I'm just going to get cut loose here and preach. Okay, so let me, let, me just, let me just do this. Watch this. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He comes and he's going to talk about foundation. He says, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another's building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that one which is laid which is Jesus Christ. That kind of points back to what he said in chapter 2 when he said, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ. He said, when I showed up, he said, I determined we weren't going to do this program and that program and I wasn't going to do this and I wasn't going to do that. I was just going to preach Jesus Christ. And he says, I laid the foundation. Now there's the foundation that was laid for the Hebrew Old Testament right there. It was a foundation of silver, a lot of silver, heavy silver. And it was to picture the fact that there was a great price to be paid for redemption. But you and I have got a better foundation than that. We got a foundation of blood. So that the foundation of silver said, you've been delivered from the house of bondage. But the foundation of blood says, you've been delivered out of the house of hell and saved for eternity. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.